We're going to look at Matthew 28, but I want you to turn first to 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. It's page 961 in your church Bible. I want us to see what the Bible actually says is at stake with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it's already been said as uh, Jim Newman, our worship presider, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what are you doing here this morning? Go home. Read the New York Times. Have a cup of coffee. Because the Bible is very honest. The Apostle Paul, who was transformed by the resurrected Christ, is very honest about what's at stake if the resurrection did not happen. Notice what he says in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. The Bible's honest. The resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen. What we do at Stone Hill is not only ridiculous, it's actually harmful. To tell people, put your hope in Jesus. He conquered death. Well, not really, but we like to think he conquered death. But you see, what's at stake in the resurrection is also true for anyone who hears the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you reject that message, you don't buy the story that Jesus conquered sin and death and you reject that and it's true. That's also a pitiable state to be in as well. And that's why it is crucial that we take a look at the text, so you can turn to Matthew 28, look at this text and for all of us, whether we believe the story or whether we, 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 we're struggling to believe the story or whether we're exploring Jesus, vitally important that we take a look at the resurrection story and what we need to see this morning are two facets, two critical facets of the resurrection story. We'll sort of ask and answer two questions this morning. The first question is this, is there evidence that the resurrection really happened? So let's look at three pieces of evidence from this text itself. What is interesting about all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention by name people who appear to be the eyewitnesses of the event in question. Take a look at our passage in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. In other words, they mention these individuals by name. It it appears that Matthew and and, and the rest of the gospel writers rely on the eyewitness testimony of named eyewitnesses to buttress their story. 
And I think what this is vitally important to understand is the Gospels, particularly Matthew, the Gospel we're looking at this morning, was written within a few decades after the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, some of the eyewitnesses to the events that Matthew records in his Gospel would have still been alive when the Gospel was actually written. So he mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. If you go back into Matthew 27, he mentions in verse 32, Simon of Cyrene, who actually carried the cross of Jesus. He then also mentions Joseph of Arimathea, who (coughs) was the one who requested the body of Jesus to be buried. And throughout Matthew, constantly are looking at these eyewitnesses. I want you to go back to first. Uh, Corinthians 15, page 961 in your people. I want you to notice what Paul said about... Now, the book of 1 Corinthians, back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians was probably written before Matthew. It was probably written about 55 AD. All right? Um, Matthew was probably written, you know, a little before 70 AD, we believe. But here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you were saved, and if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, notice what he says here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, uh, he, he called Paul to be an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. What Paul is saying here, he's writing maybe just a little over two decades after the death of Jesus. He's saying that 500 people saw Jesus, right, Um, He appeared to 500. He mentions other eyewitnesses, James and Peter and the disciples. And he's acknowledging that some of these eyewitnesses are still alive even when he writes the book. Which means that the eyewitnesses of these events were part of the way in which the Gospels were written. They formed the basis of what the Gospel was written. And the eyewitnesses themselves could have contradicted the Gospel writers if they had decided not to write faithfully what actually happened in history. For some of you who want to go a little deeper, you can get Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Bauckham makes a a very compelling case. In fact, it's it's sort of common in in some New Testament uh, studies to to view that the Gospels were written hundreds of years after Jesus was died and and, and buried and rose again. And, And what you really see in the Gospels is the church sort of creatively altered the actual history of the Gospels in order to support this new religious movement called Christianity. But Bauckham, I think, very expertly and I think very compellingly shows, no, that is not exactly what happened. The Gospels were all written within a few decades of the actual events that occurred. And the Gospel writers are using actual eyewitness accounts. And those eyewitnesses would have been the ones who could have guarded the actual history of what happened. And what you are reading in the Gospels is an accurate, an investigated uh, attempt to portray the life of Jesus as accurately as possible. 
C.S. Lewis, who's a great scholar of medieval literature, here's what he said about the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, talking about the Gospels. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, in other words, the gospels are actual accounts based on eyewitness accounts, or some unknown ancient writer without any known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. C.S. Lewis went on to say this, there's this detail in Jesus when he, um, um, when, when the woman is caught in adultery and he writes in the ground twice. And, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on what does that mean, but we're not really told what it means. C.S. Lewis says, the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. So because the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts, because these eyewitnesses are named, because these eyewitnesses were still alive when some of the New Testament was being written and the Gospels were written, we have every reason to believe that what we're reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is real history. This is what happened, and the eyewitnesses tell us what they had seen and what they had experienced. There's another little sort of relevant fact that supports the straightforward reading of the Gospels, and that's a little treatment of the disciples' reaction to the resurrected Jesus in verses 16 and 17. You remember the women had seen the, uh, the, the Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. They were supposed to tell the disciples to go to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Interesting. I mean, what this means is that some of the key disciples who would become the leaders of the church, it's actually reporting that they had trouble believing that this truly had happened, that the resurrection had happened, even though Jesus had told them, I will die and I will rise again. Now, here's the reality. Some people look at the Gospels and say, well, these are just people 2,000 years ago. They, they just didn't understand these things, they, or, they were, or they were prone to believe myths and supernatural things. That is just historical snobbery. Just because we have iPhones does not make our IQs higher than people who lived 2,000 years ago. In fact, it could be said it makes our (laughs) People 2,000 years ago knew when a body was dead. They had funerals. Okay? They didn't have funerals where they would be, you know, remembering the deceased and he got up all of a sudden. No. Didn't happen. Furthermore, what I think you're reading when it says some of the disciples doubted, even though Jesus had told them, I'm going to die and rise again, these were devout Jewish people. These were people living in first century Palestine. This is not a place 
that was ripe to believe that God, the Son of God, would come all the way out of heaven, put a human body on, live, die, and rise again. That's not what the expectation was. That's why they had trouble believing. So it's not fertile soil for a myth like that to develop. And simply, the gospel writer Matthew included that some were still struggling with doubt even though they had seen him, even though they had close friends report, we have seen Jesus, he's alive, he's risen. They still struggled to believe. That makes perfect sense given the milieu of first century Palestine for devout Jewish people. There's one more. Go back up to verse 1 of the text. Notice that the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus were women. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. It talks about the earthquake and the angel of the Lord descended. They rolled back the stone. The guards trembled. They became like dead men. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This is a fascinating reporting that the most crucial miracle in Christianity was described by all gospel writers as the women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were the ones who first understood and were first shown that Jesus is alive. They were the first eyewitness testimony that, that went out to tell the rest of the disciples. And what makes this important to realize is that in a lot of New Testament scholarship, they will talk about how, again, the Gospels are hundreds of years later when actually they were written within a couple of decades of the actual events. Uh, they, they, they underestimate the, the, the eyewitness testimony that is there. But they also forget about this tidbit that all the Gospel writers mention, is that the women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection because... If you were going to create a religion a hundred years, two hundred years after Jesus, what you would not be putting in it is that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. You just would not do that. Why? Well, it was a patriarchal society. And even in Palestine at that time, women were not really allowed to testify in a court of law. So a woman's word, a woman's eyewitness testimony would have been viewed very low on the sort of the truth, you know, spectrum. You wouldn't make that up if you were trying to reinforce this resurrection myth. This is not the way you would do it. I remember I lived overseas for a bit. I was having, I don't know if you would call it an argument. I think I was being civil. But I was having an, argue, an argument with discussion, let's call it, with somebody who believed that all of the New Testament Gospels 
were, were amended and altered and, and changed in order to support this resurrection myth. For this man, growing up in his culture, the idea that God became flesh was, was, was absolutely blasphemous to him. He couldn't, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't see it. He didn't understand why I believed it. And so we began to discuss that. And he looked at me and said, all the Gospels are, are simply clever and ingenious way for the church to establish its power a few hundred years after Jesus. So, I very nicely and graciously said, you said it was clever and ingenious? He says, yes, it's clever and ingenious. And then I said, then why would women be the first eyewitnesses of the most crucial miracle about Christianity? And he goes, what? What do you mean? I handed him a Bible. In English and in Arabic. He read it. He goes, oh. I never knew that. I said, how clever and ingenious would it be to have the women be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? They were the ones who were supposed to tell the male disciples, Jesus is alive. And of course, I knew something about his culture. I knew that it would take two women for every one male witness even today in his country in a court of law. He stammered. I asked him again, how how ingenious and clever is this? He got angry, frustrated, eventually he walked off. My friends, the only reason you include women as the main eyewitnesses of the Gospels just a few decades after the death and and resurrection of Jesus because these are what the eyewitnesses said. These are what the women told the gospel writers. These are what the women told other people who, who the gospel writers may have investigated these stories themselves individually, but maybe the people who had listened to the eyewitnesses. The only reason you put that in the gospel is because it's not some clever, ingenious uh, way to reinforce the, the, the authority of the church. In fact, it would do the opposite in that culture. The only reason that's in there is because what you're reading in this text in Matthew is actual history based on actual reporting of credible eyewitnesses, many of whom are named, many of them who would have still been alive when the Gospels were written and who were safeguarding and protected and in some sense provide a a guardianship of the true repository of this history. He is risen. You sound less sure than you did 30 minutes ago. (laughs) He is risen. risen That makes me feel a little better. I would say for all of us, wherever you are spiritually, you know, maybe maybe you're, you're somewhat skeptical of Jesus. That's fine. Maybe you struggle with doubt. That's fine too. I'm glad you're here. And maybe you're very confident. That's great. All of us would do well to study those eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see again the depth 
of these eyewitnesses' accounts that give us a credible understanding of this history so that we can be confident that Jesus really did die and rise again. It's interesting that Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And Jesus loves it when even skeptics or people who have legitimate questions query the text of God's word, ask the hard questions, get into some kind of dialogue with us. We'd love to help you with that so that you can think your way through it. Jesus doesn't ask us to make a leap of blind faith. He's given us four eyewitness accounts. They give us plenty of data and plenty of historical, defensible understandings so that we can put our faith in Jesus Christ with confidence because we're putting our faith and confidence in a real person who did die and did rise again, as he said. Well, that's the first question. What is the resurrection? Is there any evidence for the resurrection? There's the second question we need to look at, and what does the resurrection mean for those who follow Jesus? Let me sketch out three meanings just briefly for us. Turn to Matthew 28, verse 16. Jesus has rendezvoused now with his disciples and his other followers in Galilee to the mountain. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a powerful statement. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection... He has defeated the two biggest enemies that each of us have. He has defeated our sin by taking his sin upon himself as the only uh, perfect sacrifice, fully God and fully man. But his resurrection proves that his death was sufficient not only to defeat sin, but to defeat death, which is the product of our sin and rebellion against God. What you see in this, this statement by Jesus, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, it, 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 it reminds you of, of how the, the, the scriptures talk about when Jesus ascends from the earth, which he does right after this event that Matthew describes, when he, is, he ascends to heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father. He is in a position of authority. He is ruling and reigning the universe as the resurrected and ascended Jesus orchestrating the events of the world. And what is he doing? He is bringing the disparate pieces of this broken world back together. And when he comes back again, he will complete that work that he is doing now as the resurrected and ascended Christ with all power and authority. Now what's fleshed out in this statement, all authority and, and, and power has been given to me and, and heaven and earth. What, what it, the reality is once Jesus ascends, he then pours out his spirit. And so every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of the resurrected, ascended Christ living inside you. So that the entire power of this ascended, resurrected Jesus is now empowering you to live this new life more and more under the authority of Jesus Christ. We are vitally, spiritually, and actually connected to the ascended, resurrected Christ. Of course, since we are vitally connected to this Jesus who has all authority and power, 
We participate in the reality that our sins have been decisively dealt with at the cross, but our death has been decisively dealt with by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that those of us who know Christ, while we will die unless he returns, we will have life again. We too will be resurrected as Jesus was himself. And we will live forever in this new world, free from sin, death, sickness, etc. Now, given enough time, I will either be at your funeral or you will be at mine. This is the, the consequences of our sin. But the reality that Jesus' death makes an incredible difference to us. Some of you know Sutton Hamilton. I, he gave me permission to share with you. You probably know his wife, Carol Hamilton. Carol Hamilton. She was a force of nature. Yeah, see, you know that. She passed away during COVID of cancer. Sutton has been battling Parkinson's disease for a number of years. Cannot see. He's fairly immobile. His one complaint, and the only complaint I have ever heard him share, is that it takes him an hour and a half to get up, shaved, dressed. And it takes two health aides to help him do that. His quality of life has been massively diminished. Over the past couple of weeks, um, in some sense, fearing that, that Sutton may, may be preparing to, to, to go on to the next life, I've been visiting Sutton quite a bit. In my arrogance and pride, I thought I was going to encourage him. He encouraged me. There he is. Can't see. Can't hardly do anything for himself. Parkinson's disease has ravaged his body. The quality of life is minimal. And every time I ask him how he's doing, this is what he says. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go home. He has joy. He has peace. He has serenity. He treats all of his aides with, with the utmost respect. He's not angry. He's not depressed. He's not, he's not uh, complaining to God. Why is that? I ask him, why is that? He says, because of the resurrection of Jesus. I know that Jesus will raise me up to new life. And I'm ready to go. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go home. That's the hope the confidence, the joy that should allow each of us who know Christ, who know the resurrected Christ, who have the power of the resurrected Christ living inside us in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is who we ought to be if rightly transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. Can you say that? My bags are packed. I'm ready to go home. That's the first Reality of the resurrection should be lived out in our lives. It's the second reality to look at. To look at verse 19. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because of the resurrected Jesus and now the ascended Lord of the universe who's at the right hand of the Father, he entrusts us 
God's people, the church, with this incredible mission. What does he want us to do? He wants us to go wherever we are, in your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family. Go and do what? Share the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ is alive. He's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he can be yours as well. We're supposed to then help people identify in baptism with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we're supposed to teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded. What, we're, what, what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, is he's giving us partnership in his great task of reuniting all things under his authority through our gospel witness. Can you believe that? That's a problem of delegation, right? No, it's a joke. The Lord of the universe, the resurrected Jesus, the one who has all power, sends us the Holy Spirit, and he, he wants us to participate in his mission to bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is the mission we have been given by virtue of his death and resurrection and ascension. And what that means is, every time you spend time with another person you care for them, you pray for them, you read scripture to them, you point them to Christ, you provide a meal for them, you care for them in any way, you are involved in this incredible mission that ultimately will be successful because Jesus Christ will bring it to pass. And your ministry, your service in all of these areas will have an eternal impact because you're working with people who last forever and you're working with the word of God that lasts forever and if you're involved in making disciples in any way you participate in the resurrection vision and mission of Christ of the ascended Jesus and you participate in what God is doing and what God is bringing the world ultimately under his lordship when he brings in his kingdom when he returns so be encouraged you're doing something eternal. I know some of us, you're in jobs that, that, are, that are interesting, right? I, I, some of you have told me, you said it, it's like building a sandcastle at the beach. You've told me it feels like I'm working and working and working and the waves come in and washes, washes it all away. And anything that does work, even my bosses come in and, you know, step on it. You want to do something Eternal. You want to get on board with where the world is going because of the resurrected Jesus. You're involved in this mandate. Making disciples. Going and telling people about Jesus. Telling other believers and encouraging them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And all of that makes an eternal impact because you're doing it for. And in partnership with the resurrected and ascended Jesus. The last, the very end of verse 20, it says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't think that's just Jesus saying, I'm going to personally be with you. There's other passages that talk about that. He's saying he's going to personally be not just with you individually, because that word you is plural. It's hard to tell in English, because you can be singular or plural. The problem with most of you is you don't know how to talk. You haven't learned English from the South. 
because we have a word for that. It's called y'all. And that's what it says. Y'all. I will be with you all. Jesus is promising to be with his people together corporately. It's a group here. To the end of the age. Why? So that we can fulfill his mission and the power of the resurrection. So we can live in light of that resurrection power. So that we together can show the world what the resurrection power of Jesus Christ looks like. Amen? Of course, what I think Jesus is saying here in miniature, this will be fleshed out in Paul's letters to the churches is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ is beginning to establish this new community of believers. A new community of believers to show the world what the resurrection of Christ looks like. To show what the power of Christ looks like. We are to be the place where the power of the resurrection is lived out. And it is, although not perfectly because we're sinful and we don't get it. But we do that. Do you you realize this world, have you noticed there's a problem with racism in the world? Have you seen that? There's war. There's all kinds of groups fighting each other. The church is the one place when we take that bread and we drink that cup, we're putting everybody on the same plane. It's a total democratization of everybody. And Paul says, there's no, there's no slave or free. Socioeconomic differences, superfluous. Jew, Gentile, ethnic or religious difference, superfluous. Even male or female, superfluous. Why? Because at the cross, we see that all of us are sinful. We're all on the same plane. We're in deep, deep, I don't want to say that. <laughs> That's not in my script not there I promise we're in we're in deep trouble and when we say this my my body which is for you eat this remembrance for me when we drink that cup we're we're undermining all of the 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 ideologies the racism the the the, the sexism the socioeconomic classism all of that in the church is undermined simply when we follow the resurrected Christ It's also amazing in, in the church is that you see it here at Stonehill. Look at you. These are not your 300 favorite people that you would want to be with. I'm sure they're not. God has put us here, all kinds of different people, a bunch of weirdos. Why? To show the world the power of the resurrection. And there's people from all over the place. Last week I was, it was in the atrium talking to people. I met somebody from Belarus. I didn't know they were from Belarus, but they said, yeah, I'm from Belarus. I know Russian. Then I ran into a person right next to from Tajikistan. They knew Russian. Then I found someone from Ukraine and said, I think you speak Russian. So all of a sudden we had a Russian confab going on in the atrium. Well, a whole collection of people from Haiti who are frustrated that our services are not fully in Creole yet. We have a Hispanic group that meets we read scripture periodically where someone in our church reads from their heart language, the, the word of God in a different language. God is bringing together the disparate people right here, not to mention around the world. Why? To show the power of the resurrection and what? The power of uniting all things in Christ. And he promises to be with 
heal us because he wants the world to see the power of the resurrection and ascension of Christ lived out with his people. Totally different, a lot of weirdos. It's not that we would pick these friends, but he puts us together to show that the love of God is more powerful than any other love ever. So let me pray for us. That we would grow in experiencing the full power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would help each of us wherever we are, Lord. For those that are skeptical, I pray that they might reach out and we could have a you know, discovery Bible study with them, dialogue about these things. For those that need more faith, strengthen faith. For those who know you personally, I pray that the power of the resurrection would live more deeply, more consistently in all of our lives so that we can partner with the beauty and glory of your resurrected power and your ascension and your kingdom that you're bringing about so that we can demonstrate the power of the gospel and the power of the resurrection, the way we live our life and the way we handle difficulties. And so that together as God's people, we show the world the reality of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the way we live for you together in community. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.